This is section 11 of Mark Twain Speaking. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Roughing It Lecture. Lecture Season, 1871 1872. England, 1873. Read by John Greenman. Ladies and gentlemen, by request of the chairman of the committee, who has been very busy, and is very tired, I suppose, I ask leave to introduce to you the lecturer of the evening, Mr. Clemens, otherwise Mark Twain, a gentleman whose great learning, whose historical accuracy, whose devotion to science, and whose veneration for the truth, are only equaled by his high moral character and his majestic presence. I refer, in these vague and general terms, to myself. I am a little opposed to the custom of ceremoniously introducing a lecturer to an audience, partly because it seems to me that it is not entirely necessary where a man has been pretty well advertised, and partly because it makes a lecturer feel uncomfortably awkward but where it is necessary i would much rather make it myself then i can get in all the facts but it is not really the introduction that i care for i don't care about that that don't discommode me but it's the compliments that sometimes go with it that's what hurts it would hurt anybody. The idea of a young lady being introduced into society as the sweetest singer or the finest conversationalist. You might as well knock her in the head at once. She could not say a word the rest of the evening. I never had but one public introduction that seemed to me just exactly the thing. An introduction brimful of grace why it was a sort of inspiration and yet the man who made it wasn't acquainted with me but he was sensible to the backbone and he said to me now you don't want any compliments i said he was exactly right i didn't want any compliments and when he introduced me he said ladies and gentlemen I shan't fool away any unnecessary time in this introduction. I don't know anything about this man. At least, I know only two things. One is that he has never been in the penitentiary, and the other is I don't know why. Such an introduction as that puts a man at his ease right off. Now, when I first started out on this missionary expedition, I had a lecture which I liked very well, but by and by I got tired of telling that same old stuff over and over again, and then I got up another lecture, and after that another one, and I am tired of that, so I just thought tonight I would try something fresh, if you are willing. I don't suppose you care what a lecturer talks about. 
if he only tells the truth at intervals now i have got a book in press it will be out pretty soon over six hundred octavo pages and illustrated after the fashion of the innocents abroad terms uh, however i am not around canvassing for the work i should like to talk a little of that book to you tonight it is very fresh in my mind as it is not more than three months since i wrote it say thirty or forty pages or if you prefer it the whole six hundred ten or twelve years ago i crossed the continent from missouri to california in the old overland stage-coach a good while before the pacific railway was built over one thousand nine hundred miles it was a long ride day and night through sagebrush over sand and alkali plains wolves and indians starvation and smallpox everything to make the journey interesting had a splendid time a most enjoyable pleasure trip in that old stagecoach we were bound for nevada which was then a brand new territory nearly or about as large as the state of ohio it was a desolate barren sterile mountainous unpeopled country sagebrush and deserts of alkali you could scarcely cast your eye in any direction but your gaze would be met by one significant object and that was the projecting horns of a dried shrunken carcass of an ox preaching eloquent sermons of the hardships suffered by those emigrants where a soil refused to clothe its nakedness except now and then a little rill or as you might call it a river goes winding through the plain such is the carson river which clothes the valley with refreshing and fragrant hayfields however hay is a scant crop and with all the importations from california the price of that article has never come under three hundred dollars a ton in the winter the price reaches eight hundred dollars and once went up to twelve hundred dollars per ton and then the cattle were turned out to die and it is hardly putting the figures too strong to say that the valleys were paved with the remains of these cattle it is a land where the winters are long and rigorous where the summers are hot and scorching and where not a single drop of rain ever falls during eleven tedious months where it never thunders and never lightens where no river finds its way to the sea or empties its waters into the great lakes that have no perceptible outlet and whose surplus waters are spirited through mysterious channels down into the ground a territory broad and ample but which has not yet had a population numbering eighty thousand yet a country that produced twenty million dollars of silver bullion in the year 
1863, and produces $12 million to $16 million every year. Yet the population has fallen away until now it does not number more than 15,000 or 18,000. Yet that little handful of people vote just as strongly as they do anywhere, are just as well represented in the Senate of the United States as Michigan or the great state of New York with her three million or four million of people. That is equality in representation. I spoke of the sagebrush. That is a particular feature of the country out there. It's an interesting sort of shrub. You see, no other sort of vegetable, and clear from Pike's Peak to California's edge, the sagebrushes stand from three to six feet apart, one vast greenish-gray sea of sagebrush. It was the emigrant's fast friend, his only resource for fuel. In its appearance it resembles a venerable live oak, with its rough bark and knotty trunk, everything twisted and dwarfed, covered with its thick foliage. I think the sagebrush are beautiful. One at a time is, anyway. Of course, when you see them as far as the eye can reach, seven days and a half in the week, it is different. I am not trying to get up an excitement over sagebrush, but there are many reasons why it should have some mention from an appreciative friend. I grant you that as a vegetable for table use, sagebrush is a failure. Its leaves taste like our ordinary sage. You can make sage tea of it, but anybody in this audience who has ever been a boy or a girl, or both, in a country where doctors were scarce and measles and grandmothers plenty, don't hanker after sage tea. And yet, after all, there was a manifest providence in the creation of sagebrush, for it is food for the mules and donkeys, and therefore many emigrant trains are enabled to pull through with their loads where ox-teams would lie down and die of starvation. That a mule will eat sagebrush don't prove much, because I know a mule will eat anything. He don't give the toss-up of a copper between oysters, lead-pipe, brick-dust, or even patent office reports. He takes whatever he can get most of. In our journey we kept climbing and climbing for I don't know how many days and nights. At last we reached the highest eminence the extreme summit of the great range of the Rocky Mountains, and entered the celebrated South Pass. Now the South Pass is more suggestive of a straight road than a suspension bridge hung in the clouds, though in one place it suggests the latter. One could look below him on the diminishing crags and canyons lying down, down, down away to the vague plain below, with a crooked thread in it, which was the road, and tufts of feathers in it, 
which were trees the whole country spread out like a picture sleeping in the sunlight and darkness stealing over it blotting out feature after feature under the frown on a gathering storm not a film or shadow to mar the spectator's gaze i could watch that storm break forth down there could see the lightnings flash the sheeted rain drifting along the cannon's side and hear the thunder crash upon crash reverberating among a thousand rocky cliffs this is a familiar experience to traveling people it was a miracle of sublimity to a boy like me who could hardly say that he had ever been away from home a single day in his life before we visited salt lake city in our journey carson city the capital of nevada had a wild harum-scarum population of editors thieves lawyers in fact all kinds of blacklegs its desperadoes gamblers and silver miners were armed to the teeth every one of them dressed in the roughest kind of costumes which looked strange and romantic to me and i was fascinated everybody rode horseback in that town i never saw such magnificent horsemanship as that displayed in carson streets every day and i did envy them though i was not much of a horseman but i had soon learned to tell a horse from a cow and was burning with impatience to learn more i was determined to have a horse and ride myself whilst this thought was rankling in my mind the auctioneer came scouring through the plaza on a black beast that was humped like a dromedary and fearfully homely he was going at twenty twenty-two two dollars for horse saddle and bridle a man standing near me whom i didn't know but who turned out to be the auctioneer's brother noticed the wistful look in my eye and observed that that was a remarkable horse to be going at such a price let alone the saddle and bridle i said i had half a notion to bid now he says i know that horse i know him well you are a stranger i take it you might think he is an american horse but he is not anything of the kind he is a mexican plug that's what he is a genuine mexican plug but there was something else about that man's way of saying it that made me just determined that i would own a genuine mexican plug if it took every cent i had and i said has he any other advantages he hooked his forefinger in the pocket of my army shirt and led me to one side and in a low tone so that no one else could hear said shh don't say a word he can outbuck any horse in america he can outbuck any horse in the world just then the auctioneer came along twenty-four twenty-four dollars for the horse saddle and bridle i said twenty-seven sold i took the genuine mexican plug paid for him 
put him in a livery stable, let him get something to eat, and get rested, and then in the afternoon I brought him out in the plaza, and some of the citizens held him by the head, and others held him down to the earth by the tail, and I got on him. As soon as those people let go, he put all his feet in a bunch together, let his back sag down, and then he arched it up suddenly and shot me one hundred and eighty yards, and I came down again, straight down, and lighted in the saddle, and went up again, and when I came down the next time, I lit on his neck and seized him, and slid back into the saddle and held on. Then he raised himself straight up in the air on his hind feet and just walked around a while like a member of Congress, and then he came down and went up the other way and just walked around on his hands, just as a schoolboy would. Then he came down on all fours again with the same old process of shooting me up in the air, and the third time I went up I heard a man say, oh don't he buck so that was bucking i was very glad to know it not that i was enjoying it but then i had been taking a general sort of interest in it and had naturally desired to know what the name of it was and whilst i was up somebody hit the horse a whack with a strap and when i came down again the genuine bucker was gone while this performance was going on a sympathizing crowd had gathered around and one of them remarked to me stranger you have been taken in that's a genuine mexican plug and another one says think of it you might have bought an american horse used to all kinds of work for a very little more money well i didn't want to talk i didn't have anything to say. I was so jolted up, so internally, externally, and eternally mixed up, gone all to pieces. I put my hand on my forehead and the other on my stomach, and if I had been the owner of sixteen hands, I could have found a place for every one of them. Now, if you would see the noblest, loveliest inland lake in the world, you should go to Lake Tahoe. It is just on the boundary line between California and Nevada. I have seen some of the world's celebrated lakes, and they bear no comparison with Tahoe. There it is, a sheet of perfectly pure, limpid water, lifted up 6,300 feet above the sea, a vast oval mirror framed in a wall of snow-clad mountain peaks above the common world solitude is king and in that realm calm silence is brooding always it is the home of rest and tranquillity and gives emancipation and relief from the griefs and plodding cares of life could you but see the morning breaking there, gilding those snowy summits, and then creeping gradually along the slopes 
until it sets the lake and woodlands free from mist all agleam you would see old nature the master artist painting those dissolving views on the still water and finally grouping all these features into a complete picture every little dell the mountains with their dome-turned pinnacles the cataracts and drifting clouds are all exquisitely photographed on the burnished surface of the lake suffused with the softest and richest color this lake is ten miles from carson city and in company with a friend we used to foot it out there taking along provisions and blankets camp out on the lake shore two or three weeks at a time not another human being within miles of us we used to loaf about in the boat smoke and read sometimes play seven up to strengthen the mind it's a sinful game but it's mighty nice we'd just let the boat drift and drift wherever it wanted to i can stand a deal of such hardship and suffering when i'm healthy and the water was so wonderfully clear where it was eighty feet deep the pebbles on the bottom were just as distinct as if you held them in your hand and in that clear white atmosphere it seemed as if the boat was drifting through the air out in the middle it was a deep dark indigo blue and the official measurement made by the state geologist of california shows it to be one thousand five hundred and twenty-five feet deep in the center you can imagine that it would take a great many churches and steeples piled one upon another before they would be perceptible above its surface you might use up a great deal of ecclesiastical architecture in that way now notwithstanding that lake is lifted so high among the clouds surrounded by the everlasting snow-capped mountain peaks with its surface higher than mount washington in the east and notwithstanding the water is pretty shallow around the edges yet the coldest winter day in the recollection of humanity was never known to form ice upon its surface it has no feeders but the little mountain rills yet it never rises nor falls donner lake close by freezes hard every winter why lake tahoe does not is a question which no scientist has ever been able to explain if there are any consumptives here i urge them to go out there renew their age make their bodies hale and hearty in the pure magnificent air of lake tahoe if it don't cure them i will bury them i shall be glad to do it i will give them a funeral that will be a comfort to them as long as they live uh, but it will cure them i met a man there he had been a man once and now he was nothing but a shadow and a very poor shadow at that and that man had come there deliberately to die and what a sickly failure he made of it he was in dead earnest he had heard that this air was easy and soothing to breathe as god knows it is 
and he had simply come out there to have what comfort he might whilst life ebbed away and he had brought along a plan of his private graveyard and pictures and drawings of different kinds of coffins and hearses and such things and he never did anything but sit around and study that graveyard and figure at coffins and such things trying to make up his mind which kind he liked best or which kind would be most becoming well i met that man three months afterward he was chasing mountain sheep over mountains seven miles high with a sharps rifle he didn't get them but he was chasing them just the same he had used up his graveyard plans and things for wadding and had sent home for some more such a cure as that was why when i first saw that man his clothes fitted him about as a circus tent fits the tent pole now they were snug to him they stuck to him like postage stamps and he weighed a ton yes he weighed more than a ton but i will throw in the odd ounces i'm not particular about that eleven i think it was i know what i am talking about for i took him to a hay scales and weighed him myself a lot of us stood on there with him but really that was a remarkable cure i have exaggerated it a little you might not have noticed it but still it was a cure and a very remarkable one i wish you would not heed my nonsense but simply take note of my earnest word i think if i could only persuade one invalid to go out there i should feel as if i had done one thing worth having accomplished i am really sincere about that and if there is a sportsman in this audience i say to him shoulder your gun and go out there it is the noblest hunting ground on earth you can hunt there a year and never find anything except mountain sheep but you can't get near enough to shoot one you can see plenty of them with a spyglass of course you can't shoot mountain sheep with a spyglass it is our american chamois i believe that is the way the word is pronounced i don't know uh, with enormous horns inhabiting the roughest mountain fastnesses so exceedingly wild that it is impossible to get within rifle shot of it there was no other game in that country when i was there except seven up though one can see a california quail now and then a proud stately beautiful bird with a curved and graceful plume on top of its head but you can't shoot one you might as well try to kill a cast-iron dog they don't mind a mortal wound any more than a man would mind a scratch i had supposed in my innocence that silver mining was nice easy business and that of course silver lay around loose on the hillsides and that all you had to do was to pick it up and that you could tell it from any other substance on account of its brightness and its white metallic look then came my disappointment for i found that silver was merely scattered through quartz rock gold is found in cement veins in quartz veins 
loosely mingled with the earth in the sand in beds of rivers but i never heard of any other house or home for silver to live in than quartz rock this rock is of a dull whitish color faintly marked with blue veins a fine powder of silver ore makes these blue veins and this yields thirty dollars in bullion a little dab of silver that i could crowd in my mouth came out of this two thousand pounds of solid rock i found out afterward that thirty dollar rock was mighty profitable then they showed me some more rock which was a little more clouded that was worth fifty dollars a ton the bluer and darker the rock the richer it was sometimes you could find it worth four hundred dollars five hundred dollars and six hundred dollars a ton at rare intervals rock can be found that is worth one thousand five hundred dollars and two thousand dollars per ton and at rarer intervals you would see a piece of quartz that had a mass of pure silver in its grip large as a child's head more than pure because it always has a good deal of gold mixed up in its composition the wire silver is nature's aristocratic jewelry the quartz crystallizes and becomes perfectly clear just as clear and faultless as the diamond and almost as radiant in beauty nature down there in the depths of the earth takes one of these quartz rocks shapes a cavity and right in its heart imprisons a delicate little coil of serpentine pure white aristocratic silver it was uphill work this silver mining there were plenty of mines but it required a fortune to work one for tons of worthless rock must be ground to powder to get at the silver i was the owner of a hundred silver mines yet i realized that i was the poorest man on earth couldn't sell to anybody couldn't pay my board so i had to go to work in a quartz mill at ten dollars a week a nice place truly for the proprietor of a hundred silver mines i was glad to get that berth but i couldn't keep it i don't know why i was the most careful workman they ever had they said so i took more pains with my work than anybody else i was shoveling sand tailings as they call it it is silver-bearing rock that has been ground up and worked over once it is then saved and worked over again i was so particular about it that i have sat still for one hour and a half and studied about the best way to shovel that sand and if i couldn't cipher it out in my mind just so i wouldn't go shoveling around recklessly i would leave it alone until the next day many a time when i have been carrying sand from one pile to another thirty or forty feet apart i would get started with a pailful when a splendid idea would strike me and i would carry that sand right back and sit down and think about it like as not i would get so absorbed in it as to go to sleep 
I almost always go to sleep when I am excited. Why, I always knew there must be some tip-top, first-rate way to move that sand. At last I discovered it. I went to the boss and told him that I had got just the thing, the very best and quickest way to get that sand from one pile to the other, and he says, I'm awful glad to hear it. You never saw a man so uplifted as he was. It appeared to take a load off his breast, a load of sand, I suppose. And I said, What you want now is a cast-iron pipe about thirteen or fourteen feet in diameter, and, say, forty feet long, and you want to prop one end of that pipe up about thirty-five or forty feet off the ground, and then you want a revolving belt, just work it with the waste steam from the engine, a revolving belt with a revolving chair in it. I am to sit in that chair and have a Chinaman down there to fill up the bucket with sand and pass it up as I come around, and I am just to soar up there and tilt it into that pipe, and there you are. It is as easy as rolling off a log. You never saw a man so overcome with admiration, so overwhelmed. Before he knew what he was about, he discharged me. He said, I had too much talent to be fooling away my time in a quartz mill. If you will permit me, I would like to illustrate the ups and downs of the fortune in the mining country with just a little personal experience of my own. I had a cabin-mate by the name of Higby, a splendid good fellow. One morning the camp was thrown into a fearful state of excitement, for the wide west had struck a lead black with native silver and yellow with gold. The butcher had been dunning us a week or two. Higby went up and brought a handful away, and he sat studying and examining it, now and then soliloquizing in this manner. That stuff never came out of the wide west in the world. I told him it did, because I saw them hoisted out of the shaft. Higby went away by himself, and came back in a couple of hours, perfectly overcome with excitement. He came in, closed the door, went and looked out of the window to make sure there was nobody in the neighborhood, and said to me, We are worth a million of dollars. The wide west be hanged. That's a blind lead. Said I, Higby, are you really in earnest? Say it again. Say it strong, Higby. He replied, just as sure as I am standing here, it's a blind lead. We're rich. Poverty had vanished, and we could buy that town and pay for it, and six more just like it. A blind lead is one that doesn't crop out above the ground, like an ordinary quartz lead. The Wide West had simply tapped it in their shaft, and we had discovered it. It belonged to us. It was our property, and there wouldn't anybody in the camp dispute that fact. 
we took into partnership the foreman of the wide west and the wide west had to stop digging we were the lions of esmeralda people wanted to lend us money other people wanted to sell us village lots on time and the butcher brought us meat enough for a barbecue and went away without his pay now there is a rule that a certain amount of work must be done on a new claim within the first ten days or the claim is forfeited to anyone who may first take it up now i was called away to nurse an old friend who was dangerously ill at the nine mile ranch and i just wrote a note and threw it into the window telling higby where i was gone the fellow i went to nurse was an irascible sort of fellow and while carrying him from the vapor bath i let my end of him fall we had a quarrel and i started for home when i reached there i saw a vast concourse of people over at the claim and the thought struck me that we were richer than ever probably worth two million certain presently i met higby looking like a ghost and says i what on earth is the matter well he says you didn't do the work on the mine i depended on you the foreman's mother dying in california he didn't do the work our claim is forfeited and we are ruined we haven't a cent we went home to the cabin i looked down at the floor there was my note and beside it was a note from higby telling me that he was going away to look for another mine which wouldn't have amounted to anything even if he had found it in comparison with our claim it don't seem possible that there could be three as big fools in one small town but we were there and i was one of them for once in my life i was absolutely a millionaire for just ten days by the watch i was just ready to go into all kinds of dissipation and i am really thankful that this was a chapter in the history of my life although at the time of course i did a great deal of weeping and gnashing my teeth when i lost that million my heart was broken and i wanted to pine away and die but i couldn't borrow money to live on while i did so and i had to give that up everything appeared to go against me of course i might have suicided but that was kind of disagreeable i had written a few letters for the press and just in the nick of time i received a letter from the virginia city daily enterprise offering me twenty-five dollars a week to go and be a reporter on that paper i couldn't hardly believe it but this was no time for foolishness and i was in for anything i never had edited anything but if i had been offered the job of translating josephus from the original hebrew i should have taken it if i had translated josephus 
I would have thrown in as many jokes as I could for the money, and made him readable. I would have had a variety if I had to write him all up new. Well, I walked that one hundred and thirty miles in pretty quick time, and took the berth. Have you ever considered what straits reporters are sometimes pushed to in furnishing the public with news? Why, the first day items were so scarce I couldn't find an item anywhere, and just as I was on the verge of despair, as luck would have it, there came in a lot of emigrants with their wagon trains. They had been fighting with the Indians, and got the worst of it. I got the names of their killed and wounded, and then by and by there was another train came in. They hadn't had any trouble, and of course I was disappointed, but I did the best I could under the circumstances. I cross-questioned the boss emigrant and found that they were going right on through and wouldn't come back to make trouble, so I got his list of names and added to my killed and wounded, and I got ahead of all the other papers. I put that wagon train through the bloodiest Indian fight ever seen on the plains. They came out of that conflict covered with glory. The chief editor said he didn't want any better reporter than I was. I said, you just bring on your Indians and fetch out your emigrants, leave me alone, and I will make the fur fly. I will hang a scalp on every sagebrush between here and the Missouri border. That was all first rate, but by and by items got low again, and I was downhearted. I was miserable, because I couldn't strike an item. At last, fortune favored me again. A couple of dear, delightful desperadoes got into a row right before me, and one of them shot the other. I stepped right up there and got the victim to give me his last words exclusively for the Enterprise, and I added some more to them so as to be sure to get ahead of the other papers, and then I turned to the desperado said I, you are a stranger to me, sir, but you have done me a favor which I can never sufficiently thank you for. I shall ever regard you as a benefactor. And I asked him if he could lend me a half a dollar. We always borrowed a piece whenever we could. It was a public custom. The thought then struck me that I could raise a mob and hang on to the other desperado, but the officers got ahead of me and took him into custody. They were down on us and would always do any little mean thing like that to spite us, and so I was fairly launched in literature, in the business of doing good. I love to do good. It is our duty. I think when a man does good all the time, his conscience is so clear. I like to do right and be good, though there is a deal more fun in the other thing. Now you see, by my sort of experience, a man may go to bed at night not worth a cent and wake up in the morning to find himself immensely wealthy, and very often he is a man who has a 
vast cargo of ignorance to illustrate my point i will give you a story about a couple of those fresh nabobs whose names are colonels jim and jack colonel jim had seen considerable of the world but colonel jack was raised down in the backwoods of arkansas these gentlemen after their good luck determined on a pleasure trip to new york so they went to san francisco took a steamer and in due time arrived in the great metropolis while passing along the street colonel jack's attention was distracted by the hacks and splendid equipage he saw and he says well i've heard about these carriages all my life and i mean to have a ride in one i don't care what it costs so colonel jim stepped to the edge of the sidewalk and ordered a handsome carriage colonel jack says no you don't none of your cheap turnouts for me i'm here to have a good time and money's no object i'm going to have the best rig this country affords you stop that yellow one there with the pictures on it so they got into the empty omnibus and sat down colonel jack says well ain't it gay ain't it nice windows and pictures and cushions till you can't rest what would the boys think of this if they could see us cut such a swell in new york i wish they could see us what is the name of this colonel jim told him it was a barouche after a while he poked his head out in front and said to the driver i say johnny this suits me we want this shebang all day let the horses go the driver loosened the strap and passed his hand in for the fare colonel jack thinking that he wanted to shake hands shook him heartily and said you understand me you take care of me and i'll take care of you he put a twenty-dollar gold piece into the driver's hand the driver says i can't change that colonel jack replied put it into your pocket i don't want any change we're going to ride it out in a few minutes the bus stopped and a young lady got in colonel jack stared at her pretty soon she got out her money to pay the driver colonel jack says put up your money miss you're perfectly welcome to ride here just as long as you want to but this barouche is chartered and we can't let you pay soon an old lady got in colonel jack told her to sit down don't be at all uneasy everything is paid for and as free as if you were in your own turnout but you can't pay a cent pretty soon two or three gentlemen got in and ladies with children colonel jack says come right along don't mind us free blowout by and by the crowd filled all the seats and were standing up while the others climbed up on top he nudged the colonel jim and says colonel what kind of cattle do they have here if this don't bang anything i ever saw ain't they friendly and so awful cool about it but they ain't sociable but i have related enough of that circumstance to illustrate the enormous simplicity of those unfledged biddies of fortune i reported on that morning newspaper three years and it was pretty hard work but i enjoyed its attractions 
reporting is the best school in the world to get a knowledge of human beings human nature and human ways a nice gentlemanly reporter i make no references is well treated by everybody just think of the wide range of his acquaintanceship his experience of life and society no other occupation brings a man into such familiar sociable relations with all grades and classes of people the last thing at night midnight he goes browsing around after items among police and jailbirds in the lock-up questioning the prisoners and making pleasant and lasting friendships with some of the worst people on earth and the very next evening he gets himself up regardless of expense puts on all the good clothes his friends have got goes and takes dinner with the governor or the commander-in-chief of the district the united states senator and some more of the upper crust of society he is on good terms with all of them and is present at every public gathering and has easy access to every variety of people why i breakfast almost every morning with the governor dined with the principal clergyman and slept in the station-house a reporter has to lie a little of course or they would discharge him that is the only drawback to the profession this is why i left it i am different from washington i have a higher and grander standard of principle washington could not lie i can lie but won't reporting is fascinating but then it is distressing to have to lie so lying is bad lying is very bad every individual in this house knows that by experience i think that for a man to tell a lie when he can't make anything by it is wrong when i finished reporting on that paper they made me chief editor i lasted just a week i edited that paper six days and then i had five duels on my hands i wouldn't have minded that if it had been the custom for those other people to challenge me then i would have simply declined with thanks but it was not so if you abused a man in the paper if you called him names they had no rights there such as we have if the man didn't like it you had to challenge him and shoot him of course i didn't want to do this but the publisher said it was the custom society must be protected if i could not do the duties of my position he would have to hire somebody else i didn't mind the first three or four men but the other man i was after him i knew he didn't want to fight so i was going to make all the reputation out of him i could he got touched at something i said about him i don't know what it was i called him a thief perhaps he fought very shy of me at first and so i plied him with bloodthirsty challenges all the more at last he began to take an interest in this thing it seemed as though he really was going to enter into it at last all our boys were delighted at the prospect but i was not this was not a turn i was expecting in things 
fact i had taken for my second a fiery peppery little fellow named steve full of fight and anxious to have this thing fixed up right away he took me over into a little ravine beyond the town to practice it was the custom to fight with colt's heavy revolvers at five steps we borrowed a stable door for a mark from a gentleman who was absent we set up that stable door and then we propped a fence rail up against the middle to represent my antagonist and put a squash on it to represent his head he was a very light thin man very thin the poorest kind of material for a duel you could not expect to do anything with a scattering shot at all but he made a splendid line shot and it was the line that i practiced on principally and there was no success about it i could not hit the rail and there was no need that i should hit the rail the rail did not really represent him it was a little too thin and narrow but the squash was all right well i could not hit the rail and i could not hit the squash and finally when i found i could not hit the door either i got a little discouraged but when i noticed that i crippled one of the boys occasionally i thought it was not so bad i was dangerous with a pistol but not reliable finally we heard some shooting going on over in the other ravine we knew what that meant the other party was practicing i didn't feel comfortable they might straggle over the ridge and see what was going on and when they saw no bullet hole in the barn door it would be too much encouragement for them just then a little bird a little larger than a sparrow lit on the sagebrush nearby steve whipped out his revolver and shot its head off the boys picked up the bird and we were talking about it when the other dueling party came over the ridge came down to see what was going on when the second saw the bird he said how far off was it steve said about thirty steps who did that why twain man of course did he indeed can he do that often well he can do that about four times in five i knew that little rascal was lying but i didn't like to tell him so i was one of those kind of men that don't like to be too frank or too familiar in a matter like that so i didn't say anything but it was a comfort to see those fellows under jaws drop to see them turn blue about the gills and look sick they went off and got their man and took him home and when i got home i found a little note from those parties peremptorily declining the fight how sore the boys were how indignant they were and so was i but i was not distressed about it i thought i could stand it perhaps well i was out of that scrape and i didn't want to get into any more of them i turned the other four duels over to steve who wanted them but when those people found out afterward that he did that shooting he didn't get any good out of his duels they wouldn't fight him all that was in my younger days when i didn't know much which i do now 
I didn't know any better then, but now I am bitterly opposed to dueling. I think that dueling is immoral and has a bad tendency, and I think it is every man's duty to frown down and discourage dueling. I do. I discourage it on all occasions. If a man were to challenge me now, I would go and take that man by the hand and lead him to a quiet private room and kill him. Ladies and gentlemen, after thanking you heartily for the attention you have given me this evening, I desire to wish you a very pleasant good night, and at the same time assure you earnestly that I have told nothing but the truth, and I have hardly exaggerated that. Alternate Conclusion Following the Story of Colonel Jack and Colonel Jim when I told the chairman of the society this evening that I wanted to change my subject, he said it was a little risky. He didn't know about it. But I pleaded so hard and said the only reason was I didn't want to talk that Artemis Ward lecture because it had been printed in the papers. I told him that I would put in a little scrap from the Artemis Ward lecture just enough to cover the advertisement, and then I wouldn't be telling any lies. Besides, this anecdote had a moral to it. Well, that moral got him. As nearly as I can cipher it out, the newspaper reporter has got us lecturers at a disadvantage. He can either make a synopsis or do most anything he wants to. He ought to be generous, and praise us or abuse us, but not print our speeches. Artemis Ward was bothered by a shorthand reporter, and he begged him not to do him the injustice to garble his speech. He says, You can't take it all down as I utter it. The reporter said, If you utter anything I can't take down, I will agree not to print the speech. Along in the lecture he tipped the reporter a wink, and he told the following anecdote. Whistle wherever the stars occur. If you can't, get somebody that can. He said that several gentlemen were conversing in a hotel parlor, and one man sat there who didn't have anything to say. By and by the gentlemen all went out except one of the number, and the silent man. Presently the man reached out and touched the gentleman, and says, I think, sir, I have seen you somewhere before. I am not sure where it was, or when it was, but I know I have seen you. The gentleman says, Very likely, but what do you whistle for? I'll tell you all about it. I used to stammer fearfully, and I courted a girl, and she wouldn't have me because I was afflicted with such a infirmity. I went to a doctor, and he told me that every time I went to stammer that I must whistle, which I did, and it completely cured me. But don't you know that girl wouldn't have me at last, for she said that 
she wouldn't talk to a man that whistled as i did she'd as soon hold a conversation with a wheelbarrow that wanted greasing ladies and gentlemen for three or four days i have had it in my mind to throw away that other lecture but i never had the pluck to do it until tonight the audience seemed to look friendly and as i had been here before i felt a little acquainted i thought i would make the venture i sincerely thank you for the help you have given me and i bid you good night end of roughing it lecture read by john greenman